Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn more about us through zencare.org. This is the moment of the quiet. <laughs> so good evening everyone. Good evening. Good evening. We could probably do better than that. <laughs> so good evening everyone. Good evening. Actually, let's show Frank how we do it on the East Coast. <laughs> So, um, my name is Chodo, and along with Koshin, sitting here, uh, we're the co-founders of this center, New York Zen Center for Intensive Care. There's a lot of stuff that happens here around care, which of course is uh, Frank is going to be talking about this evening. Um, there's lots of information <coughs> on the website, and there's some flyers on the wall out there. If this is your first time here, please check us out. Most of you, I think 90% of you are already members and students of the center, which is beautiful. Um, so without any further ado, Frank, uh, again, probably most of you know Frank from his work. He's been a pioneer in this field of end-of-life care and caring for others. Frank is the co-founder of the New York, uh, New York Center. This project in, in San Francisco and also the founder of the Meta Institute in San Francisco. He has many, many years of this beautiful work behind him, which you will see about this evening. This great book, The Five Invitations, uh, bound to be a bestseller any minute. So, um, yeah, he's going to talk and yeah. then there'll be time for questions and answers. And uh, thank you all for being here. So, hi everyone. Nice to be with you. Thank you, Chodo, mm-hmm. for inviting me. Uh, I, I have a high regard for these two and for the work that's done in this place and throughout the city and all the boroughs. Um, um, I feel a lot of kinship with their work, and so I am very grateful to be included in the center and honored that they invited me. Um, so I thought tonight what I would do is the really great thing about writing a book is that everything you're going to say is in there. <laughs> so I don't have to think about it anymore. It's all in there. I have a friend, Ram Das, who said, write the book, then you won't have to tell those stories anymore. <laughs> so I thought what I'd do is I'd read some thing, bits from the book. It just came out yesterday, by the way. It just got released yesterday. So you, you, you have the first copies, literally fresh off the press. So um, I thought what I'd do is read a little bit, and then maybe we could chat a little bit, and we'll read a little bit more and chat a little bit, and read a little bit more and chat a little bit. We'll do it like that. Does that make sense? Yeah? And we'll see how it goes. So I, I have a, a survey question for you. Uh, how many of you, when you buy a book, ever read the introduction? Oh, wow, you all do. Very good students. <laughs> readers. You must, have, you must have been to good schools. <laughs> I, I usually jump over that part, honestly. But um, 
my publisher insisted that I write the introduction. I said, I'll write it at the end after I write the book. He said, no, no, write it at the beginning. It'll help. So I said, okay. So I thought I'd read a little bit from that. Let me get us started, and then we'll uh, see where it takes us. Now, life and death are a package deal. You can't pull them apart. In Japanese Zen, the term shoji translates as birth-death. There's no separation between life and death other than a small hyphen, a thin line that connects the two. We can't be truly alive without maintaining an awareness of death. And death is not waiting for us at the end of a long road. Death is always with us. In the marrow of every passing moment, She's the secret teacher, hiding in plain sight. She helps, us to dis- she helps us to discover what matters most. And the good news is, we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to realize the wisdom that death has to offer. Over the past 30 years, I've sat on the precipice of death with a few thousand people. Some came to their deaths full of disappointment. Others blossomed and stepped through that door full of wonder. What made the difference was the willingness to gradually live into the deeper dimensions of what it means to be human. To imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, and mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. So this book is an invitation, five invitations actually, to sit down to sit down with Beth, to have a cup of tea with her, to let her guide you toward living a more meaningful and loving life. Without a reminder of death, we tend to take life for granted, often becoming lost in endless pursuits of self-gratification. <coughs> But when we keep death at our fingertips, it reminds us not to hold on too tightly. Maybe we take ourselves and our ideas a little less seriously. Maybe we let go a little more easily. When we recognize death comes to everyone, we appreciate that we're all in the boat together. And this helps us to be kinder and gentler with each other. I'm not romantic about dying. It's hard work. Maybe the hardest work we'll ever do in this life. And it doesn't always turn out well. It can be sad and cruel, messy, beautiful, mysterious. Most of all, it's normal. We all go through it. None of us get out of your life. <laughs> <laughs> So, as Chota mentioned, I've been, I was the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in the 80s in San Francisco, uh, where we worked with ordinary people, individuals like you and me, who came face to face with what they imagined would be impossible or unbearable, walking toward their own death or accompanying someone they loved through their dying process. Yet most found within themselves the experience and the experience of dying 
the resources, the strength, the courage, the compassion to meet the impossible in extraordinary ways. Some of the people I work with live in terrible conditions, in rat-infested hotels and park benches behind City Hall. There were alcoholics and prostitutes and homeless folks who barely survived on the margins of society, and often they wore the face of resignation or were angry about their loss of control, and they had lost all trust in humanity. Some were from cultures I did not know, speaking languages I could not understand. Some had deep faith that carried them through difficult times, while others swore off religion. Nguyen feared ghosts, and Isaiah was comforted by visits from his dead mother. And there was a hemophiliac father, I remember, who had contracted the HIV disease from a blood transfusion. But years before his illness, he disowned his gay son. Now they were both dying of AIDS, in twin beds in the same room, being cared for by Agnes, the husband's wife and the son's mother. Many people I worked with died in their early 20s, having hardly begun their lives. But there was also a woman I remember named Elizabeth, who at 93 asked, why has death come for me so soon? <laughs> So some were clear as bells, whereas others couldn't recall their own names. Some were surrounded by the love of their families. Some were entirely alone. Alex, without the support of any loved ones, became so confused by his AIDS dementia that one night he climbed down onto the fire escape and froze to death. We cared for cops and firefighters who had saved numerous lives. Nurses who tended to the pain and breathlessness of others. Doctors who had pronounced patients dead from the same illnesses that were now ravaging through their own bodies. People with political power and acquired wealth and good health insurance. And refugees with little more than the shirts on their back. They died of AIDS and cancer, lung disease, kidney failure and Alzheimer's. And for some, dying was a great gift. They made reconciliations with their long-lost families. They freely expressed their love and forgiveness. Or they found the kindness and acceptance that they've been looking for their whole lives. Still others turned toward the wall in withdrawal and depression. And they never came back again. All of them are my teachers. These people invited me into the most vulnerable moments of their lives and made it possible for me to get up close and personal with death. And in the process, they taught me, <coughs> how, they taught me how to live. <coughs> That's a little from our introduction. There's more to come. <laughs> so, I'm curious. Let's just chat a little bit. Right? I'm curious to know, what's the impact of that? As you hear those words, as you hear the beginning of that story. You know? It's a little bit like, you know, when we start, we say, a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. Except this wasn't so long ago. 
Now, what's the effect on you right now? If you were to just check in for a moment with yourself, with your body, sense your body, and feel your heart, observe your mind. You know, just if you were to check in for a second, what do you notice is happening in one of those centers? What do you sense in your body? What do you feel in your heart? What do you observe in your mind? Yeah. Anybody willing to say? Come on, I'm not going to do this all night by myself. <laughs> yeah? Um, I just love to straighten it. I just don't ask if I caught it. I just didn't know her. So we just kind of were nice characters. Mm -hmm. I feel incredibly both in some ways. The relief and joy that I see incredibly as well. It's also such a beautiful and human uh, thing to do. It's very human. That's a good way to say it. The most human thing. And you know, we know how to do this. We've been doing this for millennium with each other. Reaching out in the darkness, taking care of one another. And it's only in the last several decades that we've made of dying something technological and mystical. And uh, mystifying, rather, I should say. And, uh, and so we've forgotten how natural it is for us to do this. And in a sense, what happens in an evening like this is that we remember. You know, we come together and we remember. We remember what we already know. And then we bring that into life. So what else? What else touched you? Moved you, yeah? I think when you talked about being with thousands of people yeah. who have died. Yeah. Everyone can speak up so we can hear you yeah. back. Okay, Chodo. <laughs> so when you spoke of being with thousands of people yeah. as they die, I found that statement quite overwhelming, actually. Yeah. Because I never, I mean, I appreciate what Koshin and Chodo do and who they train, but somehow I've never distilled it into that factoid. Yeah. I mean, I've been with one person. Yeah. And I was very ineffective and I have regrets about it. And to I wish I had been with thousands before I'd been with this one person. Yeah. You know, so that actually makes me respect you and want to read what you have to say because I feel like you must be very different from most of us. No, I, Although you say yeah, no. I think I'm I think I'm quite ordinary. Uh -huh. And uh, and I, I think I've been exposed to some extraordinary conditions in my life. I feel very fortunate about that. And as I say, all of these people were my teachers. Yeah. And I changed lots of diapers on park benches behind City Hall. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, you don't start with 1,000 or 2,000. You start with one. Right. Why is death referred to as a she? Why not? I, I'm just curious. I'm sure you've thought about it. Not that much, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just ask. <laughs> no, you know, sometimes when you're writing, these things just come out. I understand. And also, uh, I, I do, there is a kind of uh, soulfulness to death. Mm -hmm. And I think of the soul as feminine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and she's been such a powerful teacher mm -hmm. for me. You know, she's really opened my soul. Mm -hmm. She's really helped me that way. And, uh, you know, 
she's neither gender. Yeah. Sis, she's sis. <laughs> but uh, but I, I wanted people to take a fresh look. <coughs> and when you say she, it's a fresh look. Right? Mm -hmm. Think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Oh, oh, hang on. I'm going to go to him and then I'll come to oh. you. Okay, hang on. Go ahead. This gentleman. When you spoke about starting uh, your, your practice in the early 80s, uh, I was in my early uh, medical training. Uh -huh. And uh, it wasn't really what we were told we would get. Yeah. I had a, a lot of patients my age and younger who were dying of this thing. Nobody knew what was going on. Yes. And uh, we just happened to around from that moment. So uh, uh, we really didn't know what to do and how to treat yeah. these young people who were dying. Yeah. And I wish uh, we had access to the tools yeah. that we have access to now. Yeah. That even occurred to us back then uh, early training. You know, the patient dying was a failure. Hospice was, well, you make a call and they go away. Yeah. I think there's more, I know there's more sensitivity and training uh, in that community. I think thanks to what Chowder and Toshin are doing, there is. Uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along. I mean, the, the reason I'm with 2,000 people is because nobody else wanted to be with them. <laughs> I had a lot of access. Nobody else wanted to be with them. There weren't lots of hospice organizations. Now there's you know, for-profit hospices everywhere. It's on the continuum of healthcare. It didn't exist then, as you're suggesting. Um, and so they were the cast-offs. And in this case, in the early days of the epidemic, uh, they were really the cast-offs. I remember I worked as a, for a while I, I became a home health aide. And I worked at midnight to eight in the morning shift. I was very proud I got my certificate and everything. And, um, I remember being with one couple, beautiful couple, and he was dying, and um, his partner was prepared for him to die, and we were looking after him at home. But then the man who was dying, his parents arrived, and they wanted, they saw he was dying, they wanted to bring him to the hospital, and so they called 911 and an ambulance, and although we tried to dissuade them from this, his partner had no legal authority in that day, mm -hmm. in those days. Mm -hmm. And so he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always turn out good. That's a story we have. Back in the room. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that I find it fascinating uh, when you said uh, death as she, because growing up in different country, uh, countries with different languages, it's, it, the death is female, yes. la muerte, la muerte. Right. And I guess I always grew up saying female death, but only now it's dropping in. Yeah. And I find it extremely comforting. Yeah. That not only she, but that it's not like death out there anymore. No. No. Yeah. It's more personal, more intimate. Yes. And definitely, definitely more social. Yes. Mm -hmm. La calavera. <laughs> la calavera. La calavera, la muerte. Yeah. 